If you would, get a Bible and open to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 24 of that chapter this morning. So grab your copy of God's Word, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. When I was 18 years old, I left home for the first time and moved to college. The college I chose was Texas A&M, and of course, I joined the Cadet Corps because I wanted to be in the Aggie Band. When I was 18 years old, I had not been away from home just a great deal. I was not used to people yelling at me, waking me up at 5 in the morning and making me do push-ups. And I'll tell you, that first month of being in the Cadet Corps at A&M was one of the hardest months of my entire life. And every night I'd go to bed and I would be just as tired as I could be. And I would think about how much easier it was at home. And I would think about what it would be like to leave Texas A&M and to go home. It was what I was used to. And there were a lot of reasons why I chose to stay. One of the things that entered my mind is the embarrassment of going back home to have to say to people, yeah, I, I tried that, but I didn't make it. I, 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 I stopped. I quit. I failed. Also, the lost opportunity of the benefits of being in that environment and the, the military discipline, those kinds of things. I, I saw those things the quality of education that was afforded to me at that place. All those things entered my thinking. In my circumstance, it would not have been wrong for me to leave. It would not have been wrong for me to go home. As a matter of fact, that might have been a good choice to make. But it wasn't wrong for me to stay either. There were a lot of blessings that came from that experience in my life. Every one of us though, and I wanna to talk to you personally this morning, Every one of us, though, sooner or later, we find ourselves away from God. And just like somebody who's 18 years old and has left home and is thinking about what it would be like to go back, maybe you're living a life and you know, you know deep down inside that what you're doing is offensive to God, it doesn't please Him, you know what you're doing is wrong. And you think about what it would be like to go home to God. And you think about the embarrassment that that might cause. You think about the, the tangled web that sin has woven in your life. You think about the consequences of having to face up to some of the people that you've hurt or are hurting. And there's something about sin that makes you feel like you just can't go home. There's something about a sinful life that makes you feel like you can never go back to God. What would that be like after all? One of the great things about Jesus is that not only did he want people to come home, but Jesus makes it easy, as easy as it is possible for people who are lost in sin to come home. And as I talk this morning, I want you to think about what would it be like to go home to God? What would it be like to give up the life that you're living, to admit that what you've been doing displeased him and to come back to him, what would it be like if that was a choice you made? There's a way home for all of us. I wanna look at Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24 in some detail this morning. It's only part of the parable. It's a part of the sequence of three parables actually. There's a lost sheep that's mentioned in verses 4 through 7 of Luke chapter 15, and then there's a lost coin in verses 8 through 10. 
And then there's a lost son, verses 11 through 24. And all this is in response to the people criticizing Jesus for eating with sinners and tax collectors, verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 15. Jesus was concerned about people who needed to come home to God. And Jesus loves you and is concerned about you. Look with me and read with me, if you would, beginning in Luke 15, verse 11. A certain man had two sons, he says, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. When he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Six concepts I'd like for us to consider this morning as we think about the parable of the prodigal son. In the first place, let's think about this. Where does sin come from? Where does it begin? As you look at the first three verses of this parable, 11, 12, and 13, you'll notice some things about this boy. He's the younger of the two sons. That may or may not be indicative of anything, but he's been thinking. He's been pondering. He's been surfing the internet and looking at some things that have caused his mind to wander, have stirred his thoughts, his passions, his desires. He's been thinking about that far country and what it would be like. Where does sin come from? It begins, the Bible says, with our own desires, a curiosity. Does sin really deliver on what it promises? Does it really have something to offer me? In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, James says it very plainly. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And lust, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. Where does sin come from? It comes from the grass is greener syndrome. Yeah, things are okay in my life, but I need some excitement. I need some fun. Yes, I found myself in a difficult position, and and, and I'm, I'm really between a rock and a hard place in my life. And if I would just compromise and do something that I know is wrong, I could find joy and peace and happiness. I could find a way out. Sin begins with desire, curiosity about its joys. In Colossians 3 verse 5, the book of Colossians calls idolatry, calls covetousness idolatry. And the concept there is that when I spend my time thinking about, pondering, sinful things, sooner or later that's going to capture my heart if I'm not careful. This young man had been thinking about the far country a long time before he went to his father and asked for his inheritance. Sin is like that. Where does sin come from? There's a failure to appreciate the goodness of God when we sin. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 is accusing people who have forgotten God and worshiped idols. It's accusing them of not being thankful to God. Somebody has given us life. 
Somebody has given us breath. Somebody has given us food. And we need to properly identify the giver of every good and perfect gift. James chapter 1 verse 17. This young man was in his father's house. His father gave him everything he needed. He was treated as a son. He was loved. He was cared for. And yet he thought, maybe my life would be better off if I could just go to the far country. A failure to give thanks to God, a failure to appreciate how good we already have it, is behind nearly every sin. Where does sin originate? As you look at this young man, there is a ignorance, maybe a willful ignorance, of how his sin was affecting others. He went to his father and asked for his inheritance. He went to his father while his brother and the servants in his father's house continued to work in his father's service. And he didn't think one bit, it doesn't seem, about how his sin was going to affect other people, how it was going to hurt his dad, how it was going to wound his brother, how the servants were going to talk and whisper and gossip about what the younger son had done and what kind of father is this that his son would behave this way. He didn't think about any of those things. And I want to tell you something about sin. You may not think that sin is really going to affect other people. You may not think that what you're doing has any impact on others. But you're wrong as you can be. In Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, David, after his sin with Bathsheba, cried out to God and he said, Against you, you only have I sinned, speaking to God. David realized not only had he hurt Bathsheba, not only had he committed murder by having her husband killed, not only had he disgraced and dishonored the throne and the kingdom of Israel, but David had wounded God himself. Every time we sin, it's not just about us personally. It's about the others that we affect, the others that we hurt, the others that we influence negatively. This young man, having made the decision to sin, went off into the far country. And I want you to know, secondly, this morning that Jesus did not pull any punches. When he talked about what sin is like, Jesus was not saying, well, everybody makes mistakes. It's just the choice that you made and, you know, people mess up and they can come back to God and that's okay. That's not what Jesus is saying about sin. By the way, that's what people were implying that Jesus thought about sin back in verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. He eats with these unsavory people. He must think their sin is no big deal. No, listen to his words. We've got to call things like they are and that's what Jesus does. What is sin like? It is an insult to God himself. You know it was wrong. You knew that what you were doing was the wrong thing to do. It's wrong to cheat on your taxes. It's wrong to cheat on a test. It's wrong to cheat in business. It's wrong to steal from somebody, to take something that doesn't belong to you. That's wrong. It's wrong to cheat on your spouse. Those things are wrong, and you know they're wrong, but not only are they wrong, they are an insult, a slap in the face to God himself. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 tells us 
that when we are walking in sin, we are enemies of God. Not just apart from God, not just separate and forgotten, but enemies of God. That's the way we're living our lives. James chapter 4, verse 4, whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We have set up ourselves as those who insult God when we sin. You think about a son that comes to his dad and asks for his inheritance. What a slap in the face that must be. It's almost as if he's saying, I wish you were already dead. I've got no use for you personally. I just want the stuff that you have accumulated. What is sin like? Look at Jesus' words in this passage. It is like leaving God for something or someone else. Leaving him for something or someone else. God, you're not good enough. You haven't blessed me enough. You haven't given me what I really need. I'm leaving you. There's someone else that means more. There's something else that means more to me. In Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9, the prophet Ezekiel accused the Israelites of going, and this is King James type of language, whoring after other things. They should have been betrothed to God as his bride, but instead they were sleeping around. They were going after other lovers. That's the way the prophet described their sin. And that's what sin feels like to God. It is hurtful. It wounds. It causes pain. As you think about what sin is like and what this passage teaches, sin is squandering what is precious. This young man goes into the far country and Jesus says it this way. It says he wasted his possessions with prodigal living, verse 13. He's not investing wisely in anything. He's not storing up for a rainy day. He is wasting his inheritance and he's living it up however he desires. Whatever comes to mind, whatever is appealing, he indulges. And in the process, he's wasting that which his father had given him. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, the Bible speaks of Esau and how he sold his birthright for just a meal, a bowl of soup. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starving, I'm hungry, I'm about to die. Jacob, that soup smells so good. Why don't you give me some? And Jacob said, sure, I'll give you some, uh, some soup. Just give me your birthright, something that's precious, something that's going to affect not only you, but your entire heritage sell that to me. And Esau despised his birthright, the Bible says, by selling it so cheaply. There are some things that when we sin, we can never reclaim. We can come home to God, and that's a wonderful truth. We can still return to the house of God. But there are some things that are lost forever. You can never unspeak a sinful, hurtful word. You can never unthink a sinful, evil thought. You can never undo a sinful, evil deed. When we sin, we squander things that are precious, that are valuable. We squander our inheritance. What is sin like, Jesus? As you look at this parable, sin is like living on borrowed time. 
This young man goes into the far country and the clock starts ticking as soon as he leaves his father's house. He is going to find ruin. That is all that lies down the path of the sinner. There is nothing beneficial. There is nothing good at the end of the path of sin. Now, part of the problem with sin is that we sometimes don't see the consequences for quite a while, if ever, in this life. There are some people who walk and live in sin all their lives, and they never find themselves barren and empty like this man. They never find themselves at the end of their resources and at the end of every blessing. But this is where sin goes. Inevitably, whether in this life or the next, there is no future in sin. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 tells us, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Psalm 1, verse 1, because there's no future in that. Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, prophesies about people who were sowing to the wind. They thought they could live however they desired, but the prophet warned that they were going to reap the whirlwind. What is sin like, Jesus? It's like living on borrowed time. When I'm away from home, I need to think about my father's house. I need to think about what it looks like to go home. As you look at this passage third, notice the consequences of sin. Where does sin lead? Where does that road end? What does Jesus say about it? He wants you to know there's no future in it. There's no joy in it. There's no hope in it ultimately. It will not and does not promise what it deliver or deliver what it promises. The Bible says in verse 14, when he had spent all there arose a severe famine and he began to be in want. For the first time in his life, this young man didn't have enough food to eat. For the first time in his life, this man was empty and devoid of friends. For the first time in his life, this young man starts to realize that there's a price to pay when we commit sin. Barrenness, emptiness, no future, no joy. As you look at the consequences of sin further, Jesus says in verse 16, this man began to be in want. He goes and joins himself to a citizen of that country. And then that citizen sends him out to feed the swine, the pigs, reprehensible to a Jew, unclean animals. In fact, if there were even a scale of unclean animals, pigs would have been thought maybe the most unclean. But this young man is so desperate and so hungry, he'll do anything for a meal. And the Bible goes on to say that he's so hungry, he would have gladly filled his stomach with the paws the swine ate. And then look at the end of verse 16, no one gave him anything. When we sin, we bind ourselves to a ruthless and an unsympathetic ruler. God loves us. He promises to provide for us. He cares for us as a loving father. He promises those things in his word. Sin makes no such promises. And people who have found themselves at rock bottom will tell you 
Where do you turn? Where do you turn when you need to go home? As you look at the consequences of sin in this passage, verse 16, there's a degradation that's associated with sin, a loss of dignity. Sin always robs people of their dignity. Are people who are drunk dignified? Are people who are cheating, as we talked about a moment ago, embezzling funds, are they dignified? Are they living their lives according to some noble principle? People who are engaged in fornication and all kinds of uncleanness, is there dignity in that? Do they uphold the preciousness of one's soul? Do they uphold the beauty of God's creation? Every sin degrades man in some way. It makes us into something that we were never intended to be. A degradation, a loss of dignity, just like this young man finding himself ultimately feeding the pigs and wishing he could eat what they ate. What are the consequences of sin? Sin involves an ungodly pattern of thinking. We start to reason in our minds and we start to make excuses and rationalizations when we're sinning. And we think, well, this is really, this is all going to work out. I'm the exception to the rule. This doesn't apply to me. Verse 17, the way Jesus puts it is so simple and yet so profound. He says, when this young man came to himself. What does that imply when he came to himself? It implies that he really wasn't thinking correctly prior to verse 17. Everything he was doing, he had a good reason for, and he could give you a good excuse. And well, this person treated me this way, so that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And he could maybe lay it out as logically as you could imagine, and it would all make sense if you just looked at it from his perspective. But then Jesus says, when he looked at his circumstances and he looked at the fruit of sin in his life, and he looked at where he was, he finally came to himself. He woke up. Won't you wake up this morning? Won't you think about where sin has brought you in your life? Won't you look at where the consequences are going to lead if you continue on the path that you're on? Do you really think that the way you're living is going to bring you the things that you hope it will? You might find some joy and happiness and peace for a little while, but there is ultimately always a price to pay associated with sin. You cannot escape it. Won't you think about what it means to stay in the far country? Number four, that's what this man did. He began to compare and contrast the far country versus home. Look at verse 17. When he came to himself, he started thinking rightly. He said, and notice he's comparing now. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And here I perish with hunger. What's he doing? He's making a contrast. What was it like back at home? He knew his father once cared about him. And I would imagine that part of the reason why he might have been reluctant to go home is maybe he wonders, what's dad going to say? If I have to go back home, how's he going to treat me? I know he loved me. I know he cared about me. He never gave me any reason to think that that wasn't the case, that wasn't the truth. Even when I left, 
He let me go. He didn't chase me down and tell me that what I was doing was the wrong thing. How's he going to treat me? But he knew his father once cared about him, nonetheless. Not only that, he knew that he had once belonged in his father's house. There was a day in this young man's life when he could have walked in the front door and everything would have been fine and everybody would have been glad to see him. He remembered those days and what that was like and what it was like to have a place where he belonged, where he felt like he was part of a family. Not only that, this young man knew, as you look at verse 17, that his father, even his servants in his father's house, had bread enough and to spare. The servants had enough to eat. And here I am in this far country, and nobody will give me anything to eat. Here I am looking at what the pigs are eating and wishing I could fill my belly with that. How much better it was in my father's house. This young man, watch what he does. He dares to believe that his father might show mercy. Mercy, quite simply, is when we treat somebody better than they deserve. And this young man realizes how much he must have wounded his father as he finally starts to think about that. He realizes the inheritance that he has squandered, even though he might not have been thinking about that while it was happening. And he starts thinking about what it might be like to go home. If I left the far country and I went home, let me play that out of my mind. I wonder how dad's going to respond. I wonder what he's going to say. I wonder how he's going to treat me. But my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare. Here I perish with hunger. Maybe if I go home, maybe if I go back to my father's house, maybe he'll show me mercy. You know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it is the goodness of God, among other things, that leads us to repentance. Hellfire and damnation, those kinds of sermons have their place. Jesus certainly pulled no punches when talking about those matters. Those things can cause people to realize where sin leads, and it can cause people to realize their desperate condition, and those kinds of things can cause people to want to repent and turn back to God. But it's interesting that Romans 2, 4 says it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance as well. It's not just a contemplation of my eternal fate if I stay in the far country, but it's a contemplation of how good and merciful and loving and welcoming my God is that causes me to say, you know what? It's time to leave the far country. I need to go home to my God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, the scripture says that godly sorrow produces repentance. Repentance is changing my mind and then changing my actions, my behavior as a result of that. There was a contrast that this young man saw. Have you thought about the difference between where you are and what it would be like to be in God's house once again, coming back to your father? Notice number five. Don't skip over this. The confession. 
the words that this boy spoke. In verse 18, Jesus, this is part of the parable, and by the way, it's an important part of the parable because the words are spoken twice. Not only in verses 18 and 19, but in verse 21, these words are repeated. Jesus is saying this is important. Listen, I will arise, verse 18, and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Verse 21, when he finally comes home, he says to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He says it twice, once as a plan and once in reality. He's going to say some things, the words the boy spoke. I want you to notice some matters here. He humbled himself. No excuses, no blame shifting. There's no but in anything that he says. You know, Father, I messed up, but you kind of contributed to this too by the way that you treated me. Doesn't say that. My older brother kind of contributed to this because he suggested it might be good. What about that servant that gave me the magazine and the information about the far country and how joyful it must have been? He's got some liability too here as well. No, this young man is exceedingly admirable because he says, I made this choice. I chose to live this way. And he humbled himself. And when he came home to his father, he said, Father, I've got no excuse for what I've done. Not only that, but he shared his heart in contrite words. Words are important. Words are not empty. We live in a culture where people put every thought of their hearts on the internet for thousands and hundreds of thousands to see. And we kind of have cheapened words because of that. But God takes our words seriously. And if somebody leaves home and they go to the far country and they spend their time there and waste their inheritance and then they decide to come home again, there are some things that just have to be stated. Just the act of coming home itself does not tell the whole story. There's got to be some context. There's got to be some airing a clearing of the air. There's got to be some of that if our relationships are going to be healthy with one another, with God. There's got to be some things that we say, sharing his heart in contrite words. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive our sin. So this young man comes and he's got a confession to make. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He humbles himself and then he says something about what he's doing. He made himself completely vulnerable. Treat me, Father, like a hired servant. When people decide that they want to come home, when people decide that they've spent long enough in the far country, coming home is a matter of swallowing our pride. It's a matter of dealing with considerable embarrassment. I want you to know everybody who ever came home from the far country 
had to face some of these emotions. I'm telling you, you're not unique. Everybody has had to do this. We must make ourselves vulnerable before God. There's a saying, God will accept a broken heart, but he wants all the pieces. You can't hold anything back. You can't reserve anything and say, well, I'm going to come mostly home, but this one part of my life that I know is still wrong, I'm going to hold on to this. I know that God says this is not right. I know he says this is still a sin, but I want to keep this. Everything else, I'm coming home. No, it doesn't work that way. Father, I want to be in your house. I want to come home to you, and I'm coming wholeheartedly. I'm coming without reservation, and whatever you desire of me, that's how I want to live. Make me like one of your hired servants. That's the way that we have to come home. I said earlier that Jesus makes it easy to come home. You know what makes it difficult to come home? Sin. Because really, what is embarrassment but wounded pride? Sin makes it difficult to come home because what is reluctance to confess and to say, this is what I've done, but rather our pride saying, you know what? I know I've messed up, but I don't want to take the full blame. Sin is what makes it hard for us to come home. And I want to tell you this morning, as sure as I'm standing here, sin is insidious because sin lies to you and says you can never go home you can never come back to God you're never going to make up the things that you've done you're never going to be accepted in his house you've been too awful the things that you've done if people really knew what those things were there's no way they'd ever accept you there's no way that God would ever accept you Sin tells us those kinds of lies. And I wonder how many of those lies went through this young man's mind as he goes back to his father's house. But he desired to go home. And he resolved to share his heart in words with his father. You know about the father's response. The Bible says in verse 20, he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And he allowed the son to say what he had to say, verse 21. And then verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For, verse 24, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate to be merry. How does the father respond when he sees his son coming? His eyes were open. He was looking for his boy, wasn't he? His heart was open. Verse 20 says, he felt compassion. You know, a lot of people would feel resentment toward a son who had treated them that way. A lot of people would hold it against them and would make all kinds of hoops for them to jump through. Not this father, not your father and mine. He had compassion. His arms were open. He ran to him. He embraced him. He kissed him, verse 20. His ears were open. He listened to his words. There is a relationship that needs to be restored. There is something that needs to be said. 
And the father lets his son say it. That's an important part of all this. God is not sugarcoating our sin, and he's not saying that what we've done is not hurtful or offensive. He wants us to come back to him, though, and he's eager and compassionate. His home was open. The robe, the ring, the sandals, the fatted calf, the celebration. What this parable is telling you is that God would be overjoyed if you came home to him. There is no company in God's house that's more important than a sinner who has turned from his ways and has said, I want to come home. There's a celebration in heaven when that happens. How long are you going to stay where you are? How long are you going to continue to do what you know displeases God? How long are you going to stay far from him? I want you to know this morning, there's a way home. Won't you come home to your father? Maybe you've never obeyed the gospel that Jesus Christ died to create. What does a person need to do to come home? From the far country, very practically, very specifically, we need to believe in the person and work of Christ and what he's done to save us from our sin. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, he said, John 8, verse 24. But not only that, we need to repent. We need to come to ourselves and think straight, Luke 15, verse 17, to change the way that we're thinking about where we are and about what we've done and about what we are doing. And we need to compare and contrast. What would it be like in my father's house versus where I'm living? Not only do we need to repent, we need to confess the lordship of Christ. He knows best. He's going to be my Lord. He's going to be my judge. He's going to be my advocate all at the same time. He knows what's best. He is Lord. We need to be baptized. Philippian jailer in Acts 16 verse 30 asked, what must I do to be saved? You know what they told him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then they preached the gospel to him, and then he and his household were baptized. And then they rejoiced. They celebrated. Why? Why did they celebrate? They celebrated because another soul who had been in the far country had come home to God. Won't you come home to God? We're going to sing a song of encouragement. Let's think about where our lives are. Let's think about what it means to come home to God as we sing together. Thank you for your attention.